This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. I'm also coming to you from Washington. <laughs> I tried something new. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, hold on one sec here. So welcome, everybody. My name is Frederick Lane. I'm an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in the digital media since 1997 and has overseen over 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising solutions, media buying and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Scott R. Media at Buoyancy Digital. I'm sorry, at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn and buoyancydigital.com. Hey there, Jethro. Kind of a rocky start this morning, but you know what? <laughs> That's how it goes sometimes, right? One of my favorite ice cream flavors, Rocky Road. So <laughs> well, mission accomplished then. That's well, good. Uh, excellent. You know, actually, if you don't have a bad preview, then the show sucks. 
<laughs> anyway, my old theater days. So we are today taking on the fascinating topic of cookies, tracking, tracking pixels, web surveillance, and other things that people do to try to extract information from you. Yes, this is going to be a uh, hopefully a little scary, a little enlightening, and a, a little worthwhile for everybody to listen to today. Well, and the great thing is that it serves as a perfect lead-in, because we're actually kind of getting organized about this now. <laughs> yeah. It serves as the perfect lead-in for our interview this Thursday, which is, in fact, with Scott Rabinowitz, who is going to give us the deep and frontline dive into online advertising and the tools that are used to put those ads in front of our eyeballs in our browsers, our smartphones, and all the rest of that. So we thought it might be useful in anticipation of that interview to do an overview of some of the surveillance technologies that are out there and uh, hopefully generate some questions. I wanna remind people that we are always soliciting questions about different topics and feedback from the audience. A couple of ways you can do that. You can go to cybertraps.com, which of course is where the podcast episodes show up. And on the front page there is a questions and feedback page. Just click on it and enter your question or alternatively go straight to link.cybertraps.com backslash questions and feedback and that'll take you right to it. Yeah, and we uh, are going to do live question and answers on the first Monday of each month right now. And depending on how many questions we get, we may change that, of course. Uh, but we're going to try that out and see how it goes. And that's something where we really enjoy getting your questions. And a lot of this stuff is really, um, it's complex if you're not in the know and don't know what's going on. But it's actually pretty simple when you can uh, start understanding what you're what you're engaging with and what you're seeing. So hopefully that will be helpful. And so please make sure you do that. Today, we're going to talk about all these different things. So I thought it'd be good to start with a uh, goals of web tracking. Like why does web tracking exist in the first place? Well, it's a great topic, Jethro. And, and maybe you can launch us into that because um, you've been doing this now for what? Better part of a decade. Um, if not a little bit longer. And so, uh, you know, from the conversations you and I have had, it's clear that you have begun to look into analytics or use it as part of your mission. So what are you trying to accomplish when you do that? Well, from a publisher standpoint, I'm interested in a few things. Number one, I want to see whether or not anybody's listening to my voice crying out in the void, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Existential <laughs> alert. <laughs> yeah. So, is anybody paying attention to what I'm doing? So analytics for me are beneficial in that regard because it helps me see who's visiting my website, who's reading my emails, who's um, doing all those other kinds of things, uh, listening to the podcast, of course, all those things. Uh, it gives me information. It helps me know if I'm actually making a difference. One of the things that you'll find is that you can put something out there and people may see it, but they don't often engage with it. So that's why we love getting reviews of the podcast. That's why we love getting feedback because it tells us that people are actually listening. Um, the other thing is that you can improve your performance of your, of your website, which is also beneficial. Um, I had a website um, plugin that was making my site go super, super slow. And so I would see that uh, people would come to the website and then leave right away and I'd be able to figure out what was going on. I learned soon that 
the plugin was making it go super slow. So nobody stuck around to even see what was showing up. And that was really frustrating. And then finally, um, the other thing is really, you know, having, uh, I haven't done a lot of this, uh, mostly because of what we're going to talk about here in a bit, that I don't really believe that it's right to do a lot of it, but targeted advertising is another thing, which um, one thing that I have been able to do is to take the people who visit my website and use uh, Facebook to show them ads on Facebook so that they would come back. And I've played with that a little bit, but I haven't done a ton with that. And so we'll get into some of that. Anything else you'd add about why we why we have web tracking? Yeah, I think that this is um, this is a good place to put in uh, you know an awareness of the yin and yang of the internet, right? Uh, you know, we get a lot of free services online. I've been using Gmail now for almost fifteen years, and it's a terrific email service that continues to grow. It stores every email I've sent since. I began using it and it hasn't cost me a dime in 15 years. And the trade-off for that is that when I open my Gmail page, there are ads on the right-hand side that are fed to me based on an algorithmic look at the things that come into my inbox. And so it's a very clear trade-off for me, right? I'm, I'm willing to accept this great service in exchange for getting these ads. For some people, that's a bridge too far, and I completely understand that. There are certainly uh, for-profit mail services that you can use that don't rely on advertising. So that's just a different dynamic. The other thing I think that is really useful is to expand a little bit on what you're saying about the, the echoing voices in the void and hoping that someone is actually paying attention. Because um, I use on Cybertraps.com this service called Stack Counter which basically provides the kind of information we're going to be talking about today so that when I click on a, a report from Stack Counter, um, I get a breakdown all anonymous, which you know I want people to really understand, um, but the anonymous information about which countries people are visiting from, uh, what are the sources of my traffic, and most importantly, what pages are most popular. So for instance, just looking at this right now, um, the overall site is obviously the most popular entry point, but the Cybertraps podcast is number two, which is encouraging. And then there are specific episodes like Akuna Uka from earlier in the year. Her episode remains incredibly popular. And all of this is really, really useful in terms of helping you and I plan what our future shows should be. Yeah, I think that that's important. And just on the the piece about um, email, I have uh, personally switched to a paid email service with hey.com because they are very privacy focused and block trackers that um, that tell when you open your email and stuff like that. And so um, that's something that I'm more interested in. So I'm willing to pay money for that instead of pay with um, my data. And so that's something that people have to make a decision about themselves. And we're going to hopefully try to educate you some on that today. Uh, but still, the choice is ultimately yours. And you should at least know what what you're paying with because you're paying with something. And I think that that, that excuse me, I think that is the most important thing. As Scott's going to say later this week, you're going to pay one way or another and it's either with your data and information or it's with actual money or there's going to be some other thing. And so I, I want to make sure that we just highlight that and there are different uh, different options out there. 
Well, this is always a great opportunity to give a shout out to uh, the science fiction writer Robert Heinlein, who popularized the acronym Tonstoffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And it, it was a term that he popularized well before the invention of the internet, but it was made for it. And I think one of the things that's useful about a show like this is that we can help illustrate exactly what the trade-off is in terms of the information you give up when you're going around the web in exchange for what you get. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the things, um, the different types of web, web tracking technologies. Um, so there are a few things that are, um, you know, statistical information that, that we've already talked about a little bit. And then there's cookies, there's pixels, and there's fingerprinting. So let's talk about each one of those uh, in turn. What are cookies, first of all? You know, <laughs> you've done a lot more research than I have, so you can probably explain this a lot better than I can. Well, I, you know, I, this is this is all going to be, to be fair, a relatively public friendly explanation because <laughs> you could you could absolutely nerd out on all of the different pieces of this. And I think it is important to say that you and I today are talking about the three most common techniques for tracking people online, you know, cookies, pixels and fingerprinting. It's important to realize that people are always developing new technologies. So this is not an exclusive list, but most people have heard of cookies and um, it's kind of a cute crumbly name for something that's actually become a really huge deal on the internet. And we'll talk about this um, in a couple of different contexts. I do wanna say that one of the reasons we thought of this show is not just because we've got Scott coming on doing this great interview on Thursday, but because Google has actually announced a really profound change in terms of how it approaches this kind of technology. We'll go into a little bit more detail later on, but the point, the, the trailer, the teaser for that is that Google is basically abandoning its support for cookies. And that's going to have a pretty profound impact on the advertising agency. Okay, a little bit of background in terms of what cookies are. For starters, cookies are not software. They're not anything that runs on your computer. They're basically a small text file that is stored in your browser cache when you visit different websites. And they were actually invented literally by a single person, this guy Lou Montulli back in 1994, when he was actually working for the first browser company, Netscape. So this stuff is really from the origins of the World Wide Web forward. And the reason that he invented this technology, I guess you'd have to call it that, or this technique, is that when you visit a website, there are reasons to store certain information about your interaction with the website. And the most common of those is when I visit the New York Times or the Washington Post, the site will store my user ID and login so that I don't have to enter it every single time that I visit that website. And that's the trade-off, right? They know who I am. They know what pages I'm visiting because I've, I've given them that ability to track me. But at the same time, it reduces my irritation at having to type in my password every single time I visit. So again, all of this, this entire day, this show could be called trade-offs because that's exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah, so there are different, as you call them, flavors of cookies, right? There's 
cookies that the company whose site you're visiting is putting in, like the New York Times, Washington Post, where they're saving your credentials. And then there's second party cookies, which are sharing your information with a trusted partner. And so, for example, if you go to like orbits.com, they're going to share stuff about what you're doing with the car rental companies, the airlines, the hotels that you're going to use to make it easy for you to access and and be able to you know go on a trip somewhere. And then finally, there's third party cookies, which are typically um, typically advertising in in most of what we're going to be talking about certainly. Um, and they track your movement around the web beyond just that one website because they are a third party. They're not they're not the actual website you're visiting sharing it they're tracking it from a different location and so if you for example use a browser like the brave browser for example which is one that i use um so i i got a new computer recently and just in the past two or three weeks since i've had it i've had 3311 block trackers and ads blocked and uh, that's 106 megabytes of data that I've saved. Now, that's not really that much, but when you think about how much you're using it, and if you go to specific sites, you can see what kinds of trackers are there and how you can be blocking them with a, a browser that enables that. And it's just fascinating to see how much is out there and how many different things there are that are tracking you on the web. And you're muted, there we go. We'll figure this Zoom thing out sometime. <laughs> yeah, today's sort of like the, you know, 67 Mets in terms of our performance. But, you know, look, the um, at the end of the show, we will have some practical suggestions, including a couple of websites that you can go to to see what kind of information is being extracted from your browser and to what uses that might be put. One other thing about the cookies that I wanted to throw into the mix here um, is this uh, idea of the not just the flavors of the cookies, but the permanence of them. So within the category primarily of first party cookies, these cookies that are set by the actual website you're visiting, you've got session or temporary cookies that literally last just as long as you're on the website that time. So for instance, in most cases, if you're at a uh, vendor website of some kind or other and you start to fill out a shopping cart and then you change your mind or your computer crashes or whatever the cookie that was storing the information about what items you wanted to buy just vanishes now some sites have developed permanent or persistent cookies and a lot of that has to do, for instance, with the user ID and the passwords and stuff like that. But what I've been interested to see is that some shopping carts are now getting persistent as well. So for instance, um, I use abebooks.com a fair amount to buy used books for the research that I do. Or um, sometimes I need to buy something from Dell or Newegg.com or something like that. And in my experience, now those shopping carts persist. So the next time I log in, even if I haven't completed the purchase, my shopping cart is still there as if I had saved it. Um, it's really remarkable what they can do with that information. Yeah, which again is super convenient. If you accidentally close your tab before buying it, you go back in there and then 
boom, there it is. Uh, but at the same time, that means that they're storing information about you and it's it's not always clear what they're storing and how they're storing it. So speaking of not clear, a pixel tag is the next kind of tracking. And that's a tiny image that is one pixel by one pixel that is um, embedded into pages and message and also into email messages so that people can see what you're doing and then track you across the web. The best example of it is if you see a website um, advertising something and then all of a sudden you get a whole bunch of ads for that. That's what the pixel essentially does. Uh, do you want to explain that a little bit better than I did? <laughs> well, that's a little unfair to you, Jethro, but I'll expand upon it a little bit because I think that um, with respect to the pixel tracking, the, the real kicker about this stuff is that these pixels are really too small for the human eye to see. And on top of that, it's funny you use the term clear because they're typically clear. They're designed to be the same color as the background of whatever it's embedded in. So it would be white for an email message or if it's embedded in an advertisement or something like that, it'll pick up whatever color um, is used in the ads. And the point of these pixel tags is that they are not stored in the in the message itself. What ends up happening is that a piece of script is included in whatever the message is or the advertisement or so forth. And if the email is opened or if the web page is visited, it requests a download of the one pixel by one pixel image. So it's like downloading a photo from Google Photos or, or whatever. And the, the act of downloading that pixel image is what triggers the analysis. So for instance, if you're using this in an email program that tells you whether or not someone has read your email, the minute the person opens the email in the typical email program, a request is automatically sent to download that image. And that tells the service that you're using that the individual has opened your email at that moment in time. Now, there are some legitimate business cases for doing that kind of thing. I mean, if you're working in a fairly quick moving business and you send an email to somebody, it's useful to know whether or not they've actually read your email. And if they haven't read your email, maybe a follow-up is appropriate. Um, this is an interesting thing because of course, it's tricky for people who like to say, don't, don't track what I'm doing and when I'm doing it. Um, so that's a legitimate concern. Um, you know, some people may have issues in terms of uh, their, you know, people knowing when they do certain things and so forth. And in a second, we'll get into a much more significant and potentially invasive version of this. The key thing about pixel tags is that um, they're much more difficult to deal with than cookies because they don't get stored on your computer through your browser. There's no real way for the browser to prevent there being, I mean, there's nothing to block in terms of storage. We will talk about some other techniques that you can use to limit their impact, but simply clearing your cache or deleting all of your cookies has no impact on pixel tags. Um, so it's it's a popular technology. Yeah, so the email service that I mentioned that I use, hey.com, 
um, what they do is they will take, they will, they'll block those pixels because they understand how to do that. But then they also say that they download those pixels onto their computers, in the servers where your email is processed through in wherever it is, their company is based in Chicago. So anybody who's sending email to Jethro at hey.com may think that I live in Chicago, even though I don't, because that's where, that's where I presume their servers are. So again, now you, you have to make the trade-off is do I trust this company Basecamp, enough to keep my data secure and private and protect me from these things. And short of running your own mail server and figuring it out yourself, you have to recognize that there's going to be trade-offs and most of us are not going to make our own mail server. And, and recent history teaches us that there can be some problems with running your yes, own Yes, that is right. Especially <laughs> if you work for a government institution. Yes, <laughs> but, indeed. <laughs> but so we won't get show, into that. <laughs> this show will not endorse that practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's move on to the fingerprinting, which is basically creating a data portrait. And um, and especially as it relates to uh, the devices that we carry around with us, yeah. you have a unique device identifier, which um, which likely gives even more information than whatever other pixels or tracking uh, companies could be doing. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I think that this is fascinating. Um, you know, we we use the concept of creating a data portrait. And I think the, you know, if any of our any of our listeners want to do a little bit of homework, um, just go to Wikipedia and type in the word pointillism, because this is the electronic version of that painting technique, where a, a huge number of discrete dots, many of them only a few pixels large, incidentally, were put on the canvas and with enough of that and done with some skill, as opposed to just randomly, you get an image that emerges from those dots. That's exactly what fingerprinting is, but in a technological sense. And this is super challenging because there's certain information that your browser innately transfers to websites, non-identifying information, but again, all of that statistical information that you and I were talking about earlier in terms of you know, what browser do you use? What version is it? What iOS do you use? What version is that? Where are you located? How often have you visited? What time do you visit? Blah, blah, blah. And, and so with enough of those data points and over a long enough period of time, you can essentially create a barcode for that visitor based on all of those little bits of information. And that becomes an identifying tool for websites or for a website or for an advertising network to continue to track what you're doing. And this is, this is the most challenging thing to deal with in terms of privacy, because the information that is being collected and used to create this barcode is so integral to the operation of the web itself. Yeah, so in doing research for this, I found a, an advertising company that specializes in this kind of profiling, for lack of a better word. It creates this profile on someone, and then it is so specific that it can go, it can draw a circle of geofence around a specific place. Let's say, for example, a 
a store or a conference or something like that. And then it can target everybody who goes there. So for example, let's say this, this the store that's doing it is a golf store. And so they draw a geofence around a golf uh, course or a country club. And anybody who goes in there with their with one of the apps that tracks them using their unique device identifier, then they can then start targeting ads to that subset of people based on their physical location because that's all part of the UDID for the phone. And so it becomes really easy for them to not use cookies, not use pixels, but rather use your unique device identifier for your phone to know exactly where you are, what you're doing, and then to target you with specific things. Well, and, and keep in mind that there's, <laughs> there's a whole pile of other information that can be folded into that mix. So for instance, um, I remember a few years ago, Facebook had one of its periodic data breaches. <laughs> and even though all of the data purported to be anonymized, there were some researchers who were able to use that data and in a relatively short time, identify specific individuals based on what they were searching for and other little tidbits in the data pool. And it, you know, it were, I remember one story I think had something to do with someone who was searching for a divorce lawyer and they also had geolocation and it was really scary how quickly they could piece together the I and they interviewed her, by the way, they reached out, you know, the newspaper article I remember covering this said, um, you were identified by these scientists based on this information, would you care to comment and of course, you know it's just horror. And that kind of stuff is, uh, you know, we think, oh yeah, that probably would never happen to me, but the reality is, is that very well could happen and is happening to every single one of us. So let's transition and talk about this breaking news, which is that Google just announced that it's um, Chrome browser is not going to allow third-party cookies anymore, and that they're not going to be developing alternative technology to track individuals. Are they really not going to track people? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, now let's see. I've got a whole research file on conspiracy theories. Maybe we should do that. I, I don't even think that's a conspiracy theory. I mean, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Look, you're absolutely right. I mean, how often do we search on Google? It's like in the billions every single minute. And every Google search, with again, all of this identifying information, as a matter of fact, if you're logged in to Google, that's that's basically permission for them to track all of this information. So what they're doing is that they're reducing a significant irritant. They have enough data that they don't need third-party cookies in order to function. Exactly. Isn't that the, the true yep. story, right? But they know that these ads creep people out because you go and you look at an article about clothing or shoes or something like that and then all of a sudden for two weeks those are the ads that you're served and it's disconcerting even though there are legitimate internet reasons for that to happen it it bugs people and so google's like we're not gonna be a party third or otherwise to this <laughs> to this activity and more importantly and i think that this is the thing that's really interesting and and scott gets into this a little bit on thursday is this idea that they're not going to develop any other technology 
which would allow this kind of tracking. So they're really sticking it to the online advertising agency. My concern, as so often happens, is that what this will effectively do, however, is create an advertising technology arms race where people try to create increasingly sophisticated analytical capabilities of these other fingerprinting things we've talked about. And and so, yes, Google is killing this off, but at least we knew how it worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that to me is a really big point here. As you said, they don't need to develop something else because they already have so much data on so many people who are logged into their services all the time. And I can't remember if Scott said or if, or if Brandon is saying it the following week, but logging out of your um, out of your Google account while you're browsing the web is probably a good thing to do so that you're not constantly being tracked. Um, and for me, the concern is that at least we know how pixels work. We know how um, cookies work. And so we can do something to prevent that. But as these other things come about, and this is something else that Scott talks about that you know, uh, ads were defined a certain way. And this then led to the creation of native advertising because then you could get around the ad blockers that were um, people were using to prevent from seeing themselves from seeing ads. And so this is, we at least know what these current tools look like and how to make a choice about them. And as Google becomes more opaque and takes more uh, visibility away from what it's doing, which is exactly what it sounds like to me, then that makes it harder for us to make informed decisions about our data, where it's going and what we're, what other companies are using it for. Yeah. And I don't want to be, um, <laughs> I don't want to be unduly cynical. Um, that's not really the <laughs> show I want this to be, but it is worth remembering that one of the biggest online advertising companies in the world is Google. So if they're in the process of really, you know, kneecapping the other online advertising networks, well, it's kind of clearing the field, isn't it, for their own business practices. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out. And I would not be surprised, even though it's probably a little bit outside of our ambit, to, um, to see the need to talk about antitrust issues and how they will impact consumers and educators and parents down the road, because I will bet you dollars to donuts, as my grandmother used to say, that we will be seeing some big tech hearings and some very interesting legislation in the coming months and years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's legislation out there right now, and we certainly won't go into all that, although maybe that should be a show that we do to help people understand what's going on. Um, but I think that there are, um, there, there are things that we can do to to limit this web tracking and and so i think that it would be it would be good to start getting into that and talk about the things that we can do to to help people figure these things out i think that's really really important so we're going to go through a series of um uh increasingly um how shall we put this uh, paranoid options for <laughs> dealing <laughs> for dealing with your privacy online yeah. and we'll leave it to our listeners to choose which of the various levels of paranoia they're most comfortable with. So uh, number one, obviously, is that if you're concerned about your online privacy, the first thing to do is to be conscious of how much you are doing online. And when you can to minimize 
your online activity. Now, this is really post-pandemic advice, of course, because we haven't been doing a lot of face-to-face -face shopping or, or movement around in the world. Um, but as that becomes more and more available, we will have a choice between online activity and offline activity. And we don't even need to get started on what Amazon knows about us. So <laughs> uh, that's definitely something to think about. Moving on. Uh, Jethro, you talked about the Brave uh, browser, uh, which I've enjoyed using. It's got a smaller footprint, certainly, than its cousin Chrome, uh, which is very, very helpful. I'm actually fairly partial. I've basically switched over to Firefox uh, because it has a built-in ad blocker. Um, Mozilla is a very privacy-oriented organization. They do great work. Um, look, I, I used the Chrome browser for years, but it just got really too heavy in terms of memory usage and so forth. But again, we're, we're geeking out a bit. The thing to keep in mind with respect to ad blockers, and, and it will be interesting to see how Google's decision plays into this, is that there are some websites that break when you use an ad blocker. So for instance, I sometimes visit the progressive news site Alternate. And it just doesn't work if I'm using Mozilla because they rely upon ads for a significant part of their revenue. They can't serve me ads, so they don't serve me news. And it's it's a specific trade-off. Yeah, and there are other browsers out there besides what we've mentioned. Certainly Microsoft Edge and uh, Apple's Safari come standard on, on those devices. And then there's more beyond that that you could... I'm, I'm Right. I'm fond of Opera, actually. Yes, Opera is another one good. Um, but regardless of what you're using, you can use the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Cover Your Tracks at coveryourtracks.eff.org to see how good your, um, your uh, browser is at, at protecting you from what's going on out there. And it's it's a beneficial tool to get an idea of what what is is tracking you and how to pay attention to that. Um, and then the other thing is making your browser and email settings as restrictive as possible um, so that you don't have to um, have everything out there. You know, using a private browser is one way to make it more private. Um, and then there are a couple other things that you can do with that to, to help out with that. Yeah, and the last couple of things that I'd throw out there, um, and this is where we really start to get into the, uh, the dark is coming uh, approach to things. Um, for starters, you can regularly clear your browser cache, your history, your cookies, all the rest of that. The simplest way to educate yourself about that, I'm, I I'm sorry to say, is to use your favorite search service, Google, Bing, whatever, and just say, how do I clear my history in Firefox? How do I do it in Google Chrome, et cetera, and so forth? And you'll get instructions on how to clear your cache. It takes seconds, and it, it does impede somewhat the amount of data that is collected about you, but um, it, it's something that you need to do with some regularity. And then the last approach you can take is to do as much anonymously online as you can. So most of the major browsers have an anonymous feature or a secret browsing feature or a confidential, whatever their terminology is, but you can pull up a page that literally blocks the storage of cookies and other kinds of identifying information on your computer. 
it is good to remember though that if you even if you're in an anonymous page and you log into a website they know you've logged in that's not the anonymous part the anonymous part is what's stored on your computer um, the other thing you can do which is relatively straightforward is to use a virtual private network uh, like Nord is one there's there's dozens of them uh, Nord and Mozilla the has one too Oh, does it? I didn't yep. know that. Yeah, we it's used really NordVPN when we were over in England because there were shows in the United States we couldn't watch from. <laughs> Don't tell anybody that. Um, but in any case, uh, the last and the most complicated way to do this is to use Tor, the Onion Router, to browse with almost complete anonymity online for a bunch of technical reasons we don't want to get into. The one thing to keep in mind is that Tor is also the mechanism for getting into the quote unquote dark web. So it comes with a certain amount of responsibility in terms of how you use it and what sites you visit. But um, if you are con deeply concerned about your personal privacy and um, whether or not the government is trying to track you or big tech or what have you, the Onion Router is, is the kind of tool that is designed to fight back. Yeah, and I think that those are all good suggestions. I do want to talk a little bit about VPNs for a minute because that's something that um, is so easy, especially now, to use. I tried using a VPN several years ago, and it was incredibly complicated. And now there are so many that are on your phone and on your computer that, um, you know, I had I was using one for a while called IP Vanish, where when I would connect to a different network, it would turn on the VPN automatically. So if I was at a coffee shop and I connected to the, mm -hmm. the, the route, the Wi-Fi there, it would automatically turn on. I wouldn't have to do anything aside from setting it up originally when I first downloaded it, which that kind of ease of use is just phenomenal. So um, VPNs basically make it so that, as you said, Fred, your internet traffic is going through a different place. And so when you're in the UK, then you are essentially going through the internet in the United States. And that basically sets up a tunnel to go to that other place and, and serves your internet up from there. And so that is beneficial. And it's, like I said, very easy to set up. And there are so many different services out there. The thing to remember with this also is that there are trade-offs. And if you're not paying for the VPN, then you're paying with something else. And so it's important to know what you're paying with and and what how to make that choice. And so you got to research what their privacy policy is, what it is that they're going to do with that information and um, and more. Uh, and so if you have a trusted relationship with someone like Mozilla who has their VPN service, then that's a good way to, you know, make sure that you're staying safe and doing the things that you, uh, that getting the things tracked that you're okay with having tracked. Yeah, that's really, really good advice, Jethro. And obviously, we have no relationship with any of these companies. But I will say that my experience with NordVPN was was really solid. That right. uh, it accomplished everything we wanted. Same thing with respect to public Wi-Fi. And we'll go into this in another show in a lot more depth in terms of personal security. But using public Wi-Fi without a VPN is not the brightest idea on the planet um, because there's not only are you giving information to the service that you're actually using, whether it's McDonald's or Starbucks or Cafe Nero or, or whatever, 
you're also potentially exposing your data to someone who's eavesdropping on that public Wi-Fi service. Yes, which is so easy to do. Um, I was able to figure out how to do that in about five minutes one time just to see it. And I tried it on my home network and I could not believe um, how easy it was. So uh, just a couple tips there. Yeah. And <laughs> actually, if, yeah, and if you don't mind, Jethro, let's close this out with an anecdote from my writing. Oh, God, which book was it? American Privacy, logically enough, right? So um, my wife, Amy, and I were on a road trip to um, New Haven, Connecticut, and I was finishing up the book in a coffee shop and I opened up iTunes. And one of the things that iTunes will do is it will show you the names of any other iTunes libraries that are on the yes, same yes. network. And I, obviously New Haven's a college town and, and there were a bunch of college students doing that. And I had been steeped in this American privacy project for about a year. So I thought I'd run a little bit of an experiment on how quickly I could figure out which person was associated with one of those names. So I randomly picked one of the names and I did a Google search. I, I, I could point to that person in 30 seconds because all I had to do was Google the name, look at the hits that came up, one of which was a newsletter that was put out by a Yale dormitory with photos and boom, there you go. It yeah. was really creepy. <laughs> yeah, that is frightening. And just think if you, who's doing that for research purposes and has a valid reason to make sure you're understanding that your research is sound, uh, somebody else is doing that for other reasons. And we don't know what those could be, but it's important to pay attention and be aware of them for sure. On, on the first two pages of Google Jethro, there was more than enough information for me to strike up a conversation with that person and make it seem like I knew the family. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty wild. It was intense. It was a really good <laughs> lesson. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. All right. Well, this right. has been a good conversation. We're going to have more links to everything that we talked about at cybertraps.com slash 22, which is the episode number of this episode. So uh, articles that we talked about, if you want to learn more about it. And then if you have questions about any of this, please do get in touch by going to that questions and feedback at cybertraps.com. Perfect. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cyber security, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. And thank you for being here. I look forward to seeing you on our next episode on Thursday with Scott Rivens.
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.